The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! She please. Uh, Curator James, please show me around the place. Yeah, yeah. This is not my real voice. I just wanted to fit in with you, foreign investor. Um, How much is this painting here? Oh, this painting here. Well, f- some people uh, would call that a painting. Some people would call that our, you know, our wall. I mean, the painters who painted the wall would would be like really happy you called it a painting. I love this painting. It's an installation, yeah? Well, the yeah, I mean, by installation, you mean like the, the building that we're in? Yeah, it's, in, I mean, it, they installed the wall there. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, and I the see. artwork... What is this painting on your foot made of leisure? That, made of leisure? Well, that's my, that's what I would call a shoe. My only um, frame of reference for this accent is gold member. <laughs> yeah, well... I'm, um, I I understand you're a little confused. Like modern art is a little confusing sometimes. I but, see with perfect clarity. Um, yeah, no, well, <clears throat> I know you can see perfectly well. I mean, you're wearing five pairs of glasses on your face. What's this that painting in your mouth coming out of your throat? <laughs> That's are you referring to my tongue? It's it's going into the air and it's it's making a noise. I love it. I want to buy it. Oh. Uh, yeah, five million dollars. Oh, how about six million? <laughs> I mean, yeah. For you, I do seven. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, we'll keep going. Um, how about ten? This painting over here is wearing a vest and accepts a small tip to bring my car around. How much is that painting? Oh, he's forgotten about the millions already. Um, sir, I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. Uh, in fact... <laughs> In fact, you see that what you call a painting, and I call a human valet, uh, I'm going to have to ask you to walk towards that man and... Excuse me! Excuse me, painting! Oh, he's... How much is appropriate to tip a painting? This is getting very borderline offensive for many reasons. 
There's not just one, but many reasons. <laughs> it was a Dutch art thing. <laughs> this is the Third Men Podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I am your curator slash co-host, James Kaminsky. And if you couldn't tell, this is a Jack White history podcast, wherein we talk about Jack White history and music and bands and Third Man Records related things and movies and TV. And today, Paul, we have something very special for y'all. Yeah, we do. We do. We do all of that. And sometimes we speak in offensive accents. And that's a lot of fun for everyone. But really, today, the point of my just impeccable Dutch accent is because we are going to be covering, James, the White Stripes sophomore album, Distil, uh, named as such after the Dutch art movement. James, I'm very excited about this. We haven't done this one yet. Can you believe it? I can't believe it, Paul. We've done... So many different album analysis, and we have skipped over two of the most famous White Stripes albums, and one of them being Distil. Yeah. I'm very excited to get into it today. A lot to learn. I'm very curious about, about some of this stuff. I've always liked this album. It's got some of my favorite covers on it. I can't wait to get into this, Paul. Yeah, a lot of you uh, had written to us in, in confusion, wondering why we went in episode one covering the first album, and in episode two covering the third album and then not covering another White Stripes album for another 20 episodes. We are trying to confuse you. That yes. is true. Much like a modern art museum, we are presenting our weird at you and saying, this is our weird. It's your weird now. What do you want to make with the weird? What do you want to do with it? Do you want to sell it to a strange Dutch man? <laughs> And call it a painting, because you can, and we did, and you will, and... <laughs> yes. Yeah, all that is true. Yeah. Yeah, but James, this is their White Stripes second album. I love this album, although, it's funny, in doing all the research for this album, I really gained a new appreciation for it, which I hadn't before. It's an album which I think has a lot more meaning in it than I had originally thought in terms of Jack's development and to the White Stripes development as a band. Much like a modern art painting. It's got more meaning behind it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so uh, anyway, we're going to do all that stuff and we're going to go through the album. This is our an album analysis and review show where we're going to talk about the album. We're going to give you some background. We're going to go through track by track. We're going to give you some response to the album and then we're going to review it uh, ourselves. But before we get... To all of that, James. Is there some facts we should be smelling, Paul? Uh, this is the most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. Paul, I think I smell a fact is the segment of the show in which we find uh, some sort of truth or fact, as some may call it, uh, that, that we would have normally included in an episode that we had previously covered. And uh, instead of going back and editing an old episode that you might not want to have downloaded onto your podcatcher again, we're, we're just inserting it into this little uh, segment here so that you can, you can get this fact and smell it with us. That's a mighty fine explanation, James. 
thanks, Paul. And it's brought to you by this sultry new radio voice that I've gained from being horribly, horribly sick. James, I'm uh, I'm very sorry to hear that. The holiday season <laughs> is no time for sickness, and so I'm going to have to ask you to stop it. All right. Uh, this, I think I smell a fact, is courtesy of, a, uh, who else, James? Miss Callie Durga, Tam. Thank you, Callie, Tam. I'm getting a little, I got to tell you, I think we should just draw the line on one of the names. And I, I don't know, wh- I, I'm, I'm leaning towards Callie, but I really don't know. Uh, Callie, do you want to just chime in on that? Callie's more fun. It's got that nom de plume. It's got spunk. I hate spunk. You remember Mary Tyler Moore, James? I've never heard of such a thing. You remember that show? Mm-mm. Did the beret, she threw it in the air. Tell me more, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Callie points out, after listening to our episode 59, our interview with none other than the White Stripes debut album co-producer and contributor to Distill, the album we're about to talk about, Jim Diamond, mm. she points out a couple of interesting little facts here to expound upon. I think, James, you might have mentioned this on maybe episode two when you were explaining who Arthur Dottweiler is. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Arthur Dottweiler is the fictional character who is Jack's uncle who feeds the White Stripes macaroni and cheese before they go on tour and is really abusive to them and jack is sort of abusive back and it's 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 a very funny little like weird character jack created around the white stripes like if the white stripes were kids he was their sort of schoolmaster he was their guardian yeah right okay where's your ranger right here okay go ahead start shaving let me see what you're doing why are you going down well go up up with the razor. Yeah, but if I go up... Nice to meet you. Up with the razor. It'll break out if I go up. That's what it was doing in all those pictures. That's why you look like such a jackass in the other pictures. Anyway, Kelly points out that's Dan Miller. Dan Miller is Goober of Goober and the Peas. That's right. Yes. <laughs> I forgot about that. Previous bandmate of Jack White in the band Goober and the Peas, who, which Jack played drums for and was really Jack's first kind of band there, and then went on to form Two Star Tabernacle and Blanche. So Dan Miller, Dan John Miller's full name, and that is a whole lot of entrenchedness in the third man world there. And so, you know, I, I we have talked about doing an early bands episode. James, you had done an episode just on the go. Mm-hmm. That was a nice fleshed out look at that group. But there's so many other groups Jack was a member of prior to the Stripes. And, you know, I think we we're going to get into a show about that later. But anyway, Dan John Miller, a chief figure there. Anyway, so uh, Kelly points that out and worth mentioning because, you know, I think you had said that, but I kind of just think of him as Arthur Dottweiler and so I it just doesn't really dawn on me that I'm looking at the same guy yeah I think I did as well but I, honestly the fact had escaped me this the smell had wafted away and now I've re-smelled it it's very good Dan Miller not to be confused with the other Dan Miller musician and guitarist who is a part of the they might be giants band which I also adore different Dan Miller although that Dan Miller has recorded with Rounder Records which is a Midwest record label pretty interesting all right James we're gonna unprecedentedly stop what we're doing and stop breaking down stop breaking down stop breaking down stop breaking down I got, Paul, I got to do this. I got to stop breaking down. James, stop breaking down is the portion of the show which we normally reserve for its own segment where we screw something up horribly and then apologize for it and correct it. Yeah, and this is a side also of we're sorry. In the the previous episode, episode 60, year in review 2017, I had mentioned 
that cast corridor third man pressing mural artist Robert Sestock was dead. <laughs> and as it turns out, I made that up. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how that wound up in my notes. It did wind up in my notes. And I mistakenly had said that, no, uh, Robert Sestock is with us. He is still painting. The mural is not by the late, great Robert Sestock, but by the still great and still living (laughs) Robert Sestock. I apologize for any confusion this may have caused. I feel really bad about this. All right, James, since you mentioned it, okay, we got it confused because I had remembered the same thing. James, you're not crazy. It was an honest mistake because another guy had died. I'm going to make a pledge to you, James, and to you, the listener, to find out who the hell died that I thought died that we got confused for Mr. Sestock. I second your apology, James. We don't mean to unduly announce the dead. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we screwed up, and we're very sorry about that, and uh, that's, I guess, been a stop a breaking down. It's a stop a breaking down. <laughs> James, are you ready to get into distill? Paul, I am ready for you to distill me away so I can learn. I'm going to distill it down for you. Ah, it's better. That's better than mine. Yeah, let's get into it, Paul. Let's get into this album. We begin our story with the White Stripes slowly taking off. They had released their first album with Sympathy for the Record Industry in 1999, and they were gaining some notoriety. The White Stripes' debut album, really not making a lot of waves, I think it's fair to say, but within the Detroit community, for sure, they are starting to become relatively well-known. I think that would be fair to say. Jack is still playing with other groups, still working in his upholstery shop. Yeah. And Meg was still a bartender when it came time to record a follow-up Sympathy for the Records industry release, which would eventually be known as The Steel. He had not quit his day job yet. That's Neither had Meg. That's nice to hear, honestly. I, <laughs> he hit it big, and it helped launch his... I, I, I could. It just feels wholesome. It feels like he built it from scratch, you know? Absolutely he did, and so they're not, they're not famous here. They've got a little bit of a buzz after that first record, but that's really kind of it. But it was enough of a buzz for Long Gone to want to continue to work with them and for them to really expand upon the White Stripes. Meg was becoming a better drummer around this time. She had gained a lot of live experience. And of course, the recording of their first album a year prior must have helped with that too. Although I know in our interview with Jim Diamond, he said one of their major stumbling blocks with recording that first record was Meg dropping her sticks. So obviously, (laughs) she's still learning. Yeah, that's a problem to overcome when you're a drummer. Yeah, I think so. Dave Feeney is quoted in Empire from the Blues, that book, as saying, At first, Meg wasn't a very good drummer. She didn't keep time well, but she really stepped up to the plate by the time the second record rolled around. She's got a drum sound that's simple, but she's got more style than any of these fancy drummers with gigantic drum kits. She swung, and most drummers don't do that these days. 
I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. Also, after that first album, the White Stripes are touring and they're still married. Oh. And on March 24th, 2000, Jack and Meg were divorced. Ooh. So this is a group that is starting to take off locally and are also getting a divorce. That is a lot of pressure from many directions. Yes. I've heard accounts of a brief musical separation following the divorce, but if that happened, it didn't last long, which we haven't heard too many tales of any kind of negativity following that. It sounded like a pretty mutual decision Mm -hmm. and obviously is a very private decision, which we're not looking to get into on this podcast, but it does help you put yourself in Jack and Meg's headspace. Which is a pretty weird headspace to be in, to be honest. Yeah. I have to wonder, did he try to forget, maybe, sometimes? Did both of them try to forget or kind of live in this Stripes world to escape it all and to kind of be kids and not have to worry about that? I think that's a great observation. They had built a fiction around themselves. And part of why you do that is to protect yourself. Yeah. And if you are feeling particularly emotionally vulnerable... It would really help to have a game of make-believe you could play and avoid reality for five seconds. So yeah, I think that's spot on. Now, keep in mind also, the group hadn't even been on TV. Mm. They're really low-key, but a couple groups were on TV, James. The main change in Detroit at this time was that Kid Rock and Eminem were now household names. Mm. And the nation was turning its gaze toward Detroit. So who do you notice first? The leather-clad go who sound like every other rock band? Or do you look at the weird duo dressed like kids in red and white? Jack is kind of savvy in that way, and his mystique helped pique people's interests even more. Now, you could make an argument that you might look to the go first, because they maybe are a safer bet. Mm-hmm. They're a sound you've heard before. There are a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> They're hungry. They like the music that record executives were teenagers when that came out. So maybe the go might have been a more safe bet. But Jack and Meg, you're certainly going to notice that group. Yeah. It stands out from a mile away. And that's why Jim Diamond talked about that in our interview with him as well, where he was like, yeah, not a lot of people were wearing red pants. <laughs> It's true. And I know we uh, sometimes compare a little bit too much to the Beatles and things, but the Beatles did something similar in that their early days, the Silver Beatles, they were a normal group in which they dressed just leather clad, kind of like the Go, had slick back hair, looked kind of aggressive and played, you know, shitty bars in Hamburg. And then when they got their manager who saw something in them, he dressed them up in uniform suits and did stuff that nobody else out there was really doing and made this group presentable. It was an interesting way to present these rock and rollers. So interesting you say that. You mentioned the suits. So they have the suits, right? The Beatles have the suits, but they also have the really long hair. Mm -hmm. So they have this normal look and then this juxtaposition of craziness on top, right? Right. So the White Stripes have this very sort of It's intriguing and it's weird, but it's also non-confrontational and childlike appearance and way about how they're presenting themselves. And then they're playing this really harsh music about pain and suffering and the blues. And so it really is, I think, James, a contrast that you're keying into here, Mm -hmm. which helps these certain groups stand out. 
that is what's going on in modern culture. And everyone in the striped circle also still had day jobs, including a young Ben Blackwell, who would soon quit his journalism degree and focus full time on the White Stripes touring, as well as playing drums in the Dirt Bombs. Ben was quoted from Audio Boom. Jack just started handing me stuff, realizing certain things are important, but he couldn't be bothered to keep them. Jack spent the rest of the summer of 2000, quote, preparing for a future not yet in focus. Ah. So Jack is also starting to think about how things were progressing, and he's starting to keep an eye on the future just in case something happens. And all of this tracks with that VPRO Dutch documentary where Jack talks about starting to take people with him on tour, and we start to see signs of the gears sort of turning in his head. Things get bigger and things get handled differently what can you do you know if, if you want it just comes down to a question you know do you know do you want to load your amps in and do you want to sell the records yourself after the show at the stage or do you want someone to sell the records the whole time the show's playing you know well if you want to sell the records the whole time the show's playing you gotta take someone with you to sell the records you know and you gotta take their dog and their cat that are coming with them <laughs> and their grandmother they're gonna want to come too Another thing that's changing for the Stripes now is that other record labels are beginning to take notice, including Sub Pop, Olympia, and Bobsled. Mm -hmm. Ben Blackwell was quoted as saying, The most freaked out I got was when I received an email from Calvin Johnson of K Records. It was right before To Steal came out, and he wanted to know if the only things Jack had out were the two singles and the one LP. I just read it was from him at the top of the email and screamed. Nothing that came before was as extreme as that to me. Jack had also turned down a record deal from Bobsled because they wouldn't remove their green label mark at the side of the record. <laughs> 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 For Jack, it wasn't about being signed. It was about creative control. We don't have to explain to anyone listening to this that the White Stripes gimmick was red, white, and black as a color scheme. So I looked up this thing, and we'll put it on our Facebook page, the bobsled logo. But yeah, it's a big green logo that would have stuck out like a crazy sore thumb on a red, white, and black album. And the fact that Jack said, go f*** yourself over that logo is awesome. Let me just say, enough people say they know they can't believe... Jack White turned down the bobsled team. <laughs> hey, James, you dead? Yeah, man. Ready? Ready? Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Also around this time, Jack hires Fred Kaplan to become the White Stripes booking agent. Mm. And uh, Kaplan had worked with Bantam Rooster up to this point. Oh, nice. So the group is still steeping in the Detroit garage scene and forming relationships with bands like Whirlwind Heat, which had formed only a year prior to the Stripes in 96. This is via Wikipedia. On June 20th, 2000, the same day as the release of the White Stripes album to steal, Whirlwind Heat recorded a handful of songs in White's Attic Studio. Hmm. A single entitled Galaxy Fusion was released on Italy Records soon after, as well as a track on White's 2001 compilation, Sympathetic Sounds of Detroit, released by Sympathy Records. So he's building a lot of relationships, a lot of camaraderie, all that stuff. And James, they are preparing to record their second album. Ooh. Now, what do you say we get into this recording here? Yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. So this album was recorded between 1999 and 2000, so it was recorded over that winter. Jack often talks about the recording of this album being freezing cold and mm. them having the door open to his house. Yes. It was recorded in an uncomfortable situation, but also kind of a controlled 
situation. Comfort, a notorious enemy of Jack White and the White Stripes. Right. But as we'll find out in a moment, at least Meg's comfort played a role in it. So this is via a website called Indie 88. DeSteel was taped on an eight-track recorder in Jack White's living room using just a guitar, drums, and White's distinct piercing vocals, although obviously there was other instrumentation on the album. Jack had bought the house from his parents when they moved out. So whenever you hear anyone saying Jack's house, it's his childhood home that he bought from his parents when they left. Wow. So he's living in the place where he grew up and putting peppermint all over the place. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm doing the same thing with the house I just bought, so it's fine. I understand, Jack. This is via White Stripes message board. Jack was quoted as saying on this message board, We made a mistake with our second album, recording it in my living room. It's too distracting to be at home and to do that kind of thing. You're better off when you're away from town and you've got no choice but to get down to brass tacks. And then this is, again, via The Sound of Mutant Blues. Another quote from Jack, We didn't want to make the same album twice, so we recorded the whole second album in my living room. There wasn't any studio influence, so we felt comfortable, and Meg felt comfortable. And I think that second part is kind of one of the more central aspects of it, because, you know, as we talked about in our Jim Diamond interview, it was tough for Meg to be in the studio and to get through some of the tracking. If they were doing it in their living room, able to go a little more slowly... There's a little more forgiveness there. They're not on the dime in terms of studio time, that sort of thing. Right. This is also via that Sound of Mutant Blues book. Later, Jack indicated he wasn't so sure it was a good idea to record in his home. Quote, there were too many distractions, the phone ringing and all that jazz, and people would knock at the door. We even had one drunk guy wander in the house off the street while we were recording Death Letter. (laughs) Which is... Kind of amazing, actually. Yes. The second album we made with the White Stripes, we recorded in uh, my living room uh, on an eight-track reel-to-reel, and uh, so I was sort of setting up the microphones and, and have, had the mixers going, and then we were also performing at the same time. So at one point during the album, we were doing a cover of Sunhouse's Death Letter, and um, I had went over to the mixing board, and uh, Meg had done a, a, gave me the drum volume, and I would set it, and we pressed record, and turned around, and we started playing. And we're playing for about a minute, and Meg uh, stops and has this fear of God look in her face like this. She's completely frozen, and I'm still playing, and I don't understand what's going on. And I said, what? I stopped and said, what? And she didn't say anything. (laughs) I didn't know what's going on. I turned around, and there was a 300-pound drunk man standing behind me in my living room (laughs) who had just been walking down the street and walked in to the house. When you record under that kind of duress in Detroit, I think you really learn a lot about constriction. And- Dan John Miller, Goober of Goober and the Peas, we, we talked about a little bit uh, last time, mm-hmm. and also Arthur Dottweiler, was quoted as saying, With DeSteel, you saw better fidelity with the recording. I think you saw more of a progression developing songs and messing with arrangements more. More of a pop aspect. The second album seemed a little more inconsistent as far as the production went, but the songwriting itself was more poppy. The first album was just the vocal run through a guitar amp, but even then they were doing different stuff. The guitar sound on Screwdriver, the piano on St. James, etc., but they still had the genuine emotion. I thought it was a perfect second step. Hmm. This is one of the first few times you're going to listen to people talk about this album, Jack included, as a pop record. And I think 
the more I researched the album, the more that aspect of it came into focus. It seemed a little more like a a swing for the commercial fences. Mm. Like Jack was at a sort of an unsure place in his life, unsure where his career is going. He's still got his day job. His music career could go anywhere. In a lot of ways, I think this was really Jack saying, I got to flex some muscle here and shit or get off the pot. Yeah, it is definitely more commercially accessible than their self-titled. But their self-titled and to steal, I would put kind of in the same grouping. They're both still sort of unpolished enough to be adored by an indie crowd. Mm-hmm. But The Steel has some catchier tunes, some tunes that are more ready for radio play. I think a lot of times artists go, keep going and going, and they just think, I need to get some more money. I need to get even more money than I already have. Or things like that. I want more, more, more. We're not the kind of people that want more, more, more. I think we want less, less, less. You know, With the confinement of everything we do all the time, it's such a minimalistic approach to things that uh, it's in the exact reverse of what is usually about fame and uh, success. There'll be no casino tours for the White Stripes. hope not. <laughs> Even though this album was recorded at their home, it was mixed with Jim Diamond back at Ghetto Recorders. And it kind of gets a little hinky there, but that guy from Empire of the Blues, that uh, unauthorized biography, quoted Jim Diamond as saying, Jack did all the basic tracks at home and finished it up at my place, adding equalization, reverb, and delay effects. That's why I mix a lot of things, because I give it my own raw presence, so it becomes tough. Some things need a little help. That was the case in that record, because it was recorded at home. So I had to pull out a lot of tricks to make it have that power. Mm. This is where a lot of the dispute between Jack and Jim originates. What Jack would call mixing, Jim was claiming to be producing. And early credits on the album do give Jim co-production credit, though all of that production credit is credited to Jack today. So I think that's kind of where the rub is. I think modern studios start to feel plastic, you know, and I... And it starts pushing you away from soulfulness and, and, get, and, and getting down to something raw. I, when you get into those really fancy places, plus you have to start debating with engineers, and they, they, they want you to start using computers and do things the, the faster way, the easier way, and you end up, and I don't really feel like arguing, you know, so I end up saying, okay, fine. I do wish we sort of talked to Jim a little bit more about the steel, because mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions about that. But again, we weren't trying to generate drama or be gossipy or anything like that with that interview. It just wasn't what we were trying to do. Right. So this is, uh, again, via the uh, the book, The Sound of Mutant Blues. Jim Diamond said that he didn't have much to do with Meg on that album. It was all him and Jack. It was recorded on Jack's 8-track, but mixed on Jim's 8-track analog. From Jim, quote, his house was only 10 minutes away. I guess he figured he could save money doing it that way. <laughs> um, the mixing was fast, and the bill came out to about $600. Oh, wow. Not too shabby. I was looking at a TV today that was more money than that. Um, <laughs> what kind of studio setup do you have at home? It's horrible. Just no, really cheap, <laughs> cheap microphones in the attic, and just eight track, reel to reel. It's not, not very complicated. When you work with what you have, is something better is going to come out of it. If I had a twenty-four track studio in my home and the most amazing thousand-dollar microphones or whatever, maybe that just it hinders creativity. I think when you you're forced to work in a certain environment. Uh, it's gonna, the results are going to be better. Uh, this is Ben Blackwell interviewing Jim Diamond in the Mutant Blues book. Ben Blackwell said, What would you say of Jack's recording technique? Uh, Jim says, He's got some specific... Bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's got, Jim says he's got some specific ideas on how he likes things to sound, so that's good. Some of it's different from what I would do. He likes things too loud. I'm like, I cannot sit here anymore. So I hope that boy's ears are working in 10 or 20 years. <laughs> he's got his own ideas, and that's good because most people have no ideas. Hey. Yeah. That's something. Ben uh, follows up with anything more to say about Distille and sympathetic sounds? Did you have to fix those up? Or Jim says, no, Distille was fine. Jack's good at recording his own band. He's not a recording engineer. He's a guitar player and a singer and a songwriter. It sounds like Jack did a competent job of actually cutting the record, at least mostly cutting the record at home. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the acoustics in the living room were fine. You know, it seems like a cozy space. Well, the couch was really great baffling. Yeah. (laughs) And it's amazing we don't hear any of the dogs barking, though. You know, that's kind of remarkable now that I'm thinking about it, because Jack definitely had, didn't he have like Jasper and what's the other one? I know little to nothing about Jack's dogs, which smells to me like the makings for a perfectly good episode, Paul. <laughs> it does, it does. No, but he, he gives them some kind of credit in the liner notes on the first album, I think, or he thanks them or something. Um, yeah, guitar. <laughs> now, Jasper, I want you to fight with this guitar. Now, now, Jasper. Meg is not the guitar. <laughs> Don't make me spay you twice. I named this dog Swank. <laughs> no joke, though. He did have a zebra on his walls. <laughs> Just live, uh, so, like, tacked up there. <laughs> so, James, that was the recording of the album. It sounded cold and desperate mm. and done with a couple going through, I can't emphasize this enough, going through a divorce. That had to be incredibly awkward. And obviously the record was cut prior to the actual divorce. So, my God, what kind of different emotions were each of those people working out through that record? I don't know. But it's certainly packed with it. And we'll get into the songs in a moment. But when you take a look at some of these songs, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's how they're working through it. I get it, you know? Mm. Anyway, so let's go on to the release, James. Let's get on to the release of this record. I'm ready, Paul. Let's release it. It was released on June 20th, 2000 in the U.S. on the Sympathy for the Record Industry label. That's Long Gone's 1,609th release. Nice. Yeah, did a lot of that. XL wound up releasing it in the UK in 2001 and again in 2006. Then it was released in Russia in 2005 on XL Soyuz label that was obviously after they got super famous uh v2 released the album on cassette in indonesia once again the indonesian trucker market demands the white stripes on cassette oh they are flipping through those cassettes and they see this album and they listen to it and they say was this recorded in some guy's living room probably (laughs) i like it it's uh, (laughs) and that's in 2002 so you know not quite as far into the death of cassettes as 2005 was for Get Behind Me Satan, but pretty close, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. Uh, Third Man released it in 2008 in the U.S. and Canada when it reverted to Jack's label, and obviously we'll talk a little bit more about it being released again as being pressed in the uh, Third Man pressing plant. Mm -hmm. Chart position? Again, at this time, the band was still a local phenomenon, so the record did not chart initially upon its release, Although it did, however, reach number 38 on the Billboard Independent Albums chart on April 20th, 2002, once the band had gained popularity, and it spent a total of four weeks on that chart. So once 
white blood cells came out and some of these reissues started to flow. Obviously, the Indonesian trucker market put a massive stamp on that and caused it to chart, but did reach number 38. Impressive numbers regardless. Mm-hmm. And it reached number 164 on the French albums chart and number 137 in the UK, although I could not find a year specified to those numbers. I would have to guess it is, again, later after the band had gained popularity, possibly when John Peel had championed the group in the UK. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, we know that John Peel did find the first two records in that, I want to say, Swiss record shop. That's where he discovered them for the first time. So we do know he found this one and the first record. I'm struggling to remember when, but if you'd like to find out more about John Peel and the White Stripes, listen to our full episode about John Peel and the White Stripes, and it'll tell you Episode... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Episode we can't remember. <laughs> and uh, as far as labels go, yes, it was released on Long Gone John's Sympathy for the Record Industry, the second of three White Stripes releases from that indie label mm-hmm. that gave them their start. It is 37 minutes and 31 seconds in length, 13 tracks total, recorded at, quote, Third Man Studio, which is Jack's house, and mixed at Ghetto Recorders by Jim Diamond. The reissued vinyl LP version of the record was pressed at United Record Pressing in Nashville, Tennessee, and mastered all analog from the original master tapes. Those are the third man releases that had come out later. There is an inset in the release with the following essay included. When ideas become too complicated, and the pursuit of perfection is misconstrued as a need for excess... When there is so much involved that individual components cannot be discerned, when it is hard to break the rules of excess, then new rules must be established. It descends back to the beginning where the construction of things visual and oral is too uncomplicated. There shall be no drinks on the coffee table without a coaster. Is too uncomplicated to not be beautiful. But this is done in the knowledge that we can only become simple to a point where there is nowhere else to go. There are definite natural things which cannot be broken down to their lesser components. Even if the goal of achieving beauty from simplicity is aesthetically less exciting, it may force the mind to acknowledge the simple components that make the complicated beautiful. Uh, yeah. I agreed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, and? <laughs> yeah, I. you know what? It's his mantra just with more words in it, you know? Yeah. We're doing a lot with a little. You'll come to appreciate something that normally would seem mundane. And someday, somebody's going to come along and say, instead of three components, you really only need two, and they're going to try and make you a partner in a baseball bat company. And you're going to agree (laughs) and get into a lot of spirited debates about it. That's true. It comes with a branded inner sleeve stating, y'all's turntables ain't big enough. Ooh, they're not dead yet. No. They're just too small. Yeah. And it is dedicated to Blind Willie McTell and Garrett Rietveld. And we will get into Garrett in a moment, uh, and Blind Willie, as, as a matter of fact. But this album also contains designs, sculptures, and sketches of Paul Overy, <laughs> <laughs> Garrett Rietveld, Theo van Doisburg, Georges van Tongerloo, and Vilmos Hussar. Paul, you did fine. Those sounded <laughs> great. They are street accurate. So, James, are you ready to get into the title of this album and what the f*** Distill means? Paul, I can't even bring my brain to figure it out. I need you to know 
that I need to know what this title means. Let's do it. Ben Blackwell says, quote, I've always been impressed by how ahead of everything Jack is. Before the first album even came out, he was talking about how the next album was going to be called To Steal and saying he was going to be on the cover with his arms at right angles. <laughs> Which is insane. Uh, Jack White was uh, quoted as saying, I don't feel prolific at all. I feel set in my ways. I love that art movement, and it just seemed to coincide more with what we were doing on the second album than it did with the first because of its correlation with the idea that the blues were breaking songwriting down to its simplest forms. With our second album, we were going to try multitrack try piano or violin on different things and bring up the question of how far we can go the concept wouldn't have applied to our first album or to blood cells it didn't matter what songs were on there it was a matter of the approach to the recording which i do think is kind of an interesting statement because oftentimes with jack's songs i always feel like really the songs themselves could be interchanged with really any album Mm -hmm. at at least in the certain in the in their respective groups but the approach to the recording of those songs is so drastically different that the intent behind the mission of the record sort of becomes more important than the actual content of the songs themselves right depending on what angle his arms are at at the moment yes (laughs) i know like both of those quotes are kind of contradictory because ben's like yeah he knew this and jack's like i didn't know it it was all spontaneous (laughs) my arms were at 60 degrees i didn't even know it so to steal is a dutch art movement james yes also known as neoplasticism and you may remember neoplasticism from our interview with Jim Diamond, Mm. where he talks about the group he created called the Neoplastics about the Neoplasticism era, which firmly predates this. (laughs) But uh, that Neoplasticism was a movement founded in 1917, the most famous of which being Piet Mondrian. I think if you're familiar with any, even a little bit of art history, you're aware of him. He's the squares guy. It was used by artists and architects and advocated for pure abstraction and universality by a reduction to the essentials of form and color. They simplified their art to vertical and horizontal using only black, white, and primary colors. It's the one where everything is simple shapes. So that sums up the white stripes in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, even their name. And it's unclear which came first, the chicken or the egg in that case. Uh, Did Jack really like this idea first or did he get into neoplasticism first did somebody tell him about the distill movement and did he then form this around it I- i'm not really sure to be honest callie may know more i'm not sure if there's an interview talking about that more but i don't know which came first so i forget who it was i guess it was picasso maybe who said that he spent his whole life learning uh to, took his whole life to, to learn how to paint like a five-year-old uh, i'm not sure if it was him who said that uh, correct me if i'm wrong but i, I it the you know, that's how I felt about Meg. You know, she's she's painting like a she's painting like a five year old. She's playing like a five year old. She's uh, she's playing drums just like a little child. And I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could play the guitar like a little child. You know, you know the blues is really meaningful to me. It's very soulful to me. It's the most important music I think of all time. You know, and I, I in order for me to play it, I mean, it, it took the White Stripes for me to be able to play it live because of the aesthetic of the band where everything was red, white, and black, and me and her were presenting it in that fashion, 
that it was almost uh, a distraction to, to trick people into not realizing that I was white. <laughs> no. Or maybe you were Which so white that it didn't band. matter, right? That's <laughs> what I mean, you know, with yeah. Jack White and Meg White and the band's called The White Stripes, you know what I mean? So it almost like taking it to the extreme of, a, of distraction. So Jack had been an admirer of the style for some time, especially of furniture designer Garrett Rietveld. Rietveld designed the Rietveld Schroeder House, which Jack and Meg visited while on tour in the Netherlands. <laughs> was dedicated to both Rietveld and blind Willie McTell. Rietveld and McTell both used honest simplicity to convey their art, something Jack obviously admired. Mm-hmm. Obviously, furniture plays a role here, too, because Jack was still working at his upholstery shop up to this point. It was only after the Destille tour began that he closed up shop. The Rietveld Schroeder House was built in 1923 and 1924 and resides in Utrecht, Netherlands. I assume where the name of that art store comes from. Definitely. And the <laughs> and the place looks like you're stepping inside the album cover. I looked up some photos. We'll put some on the Facebook page. The houses surrounding it all look ancient by comparison, but all were built around the same time. Rietveld Schroeder House stands out with this style and obviously parallel to how the White Stripes use style to stand out from all the other Detroit bands in the Garage Rock revival. To those offended by this accent, it's all Paul. <laughs> Since that time, the house was added to the World Heritage List, and Jack was said to love the house and called it beautiful and perfect. The Destile movement was also about the evolution of mankind, and according to that Empire from the Blues book, part of Jack's reasoning in naming the album Destile dealt with the band's evolution. This album added lots of other instruments, stand-up bass, violins, piano, and two other contributing musicians. Via the AV Club, Jack is quoted here, In my mind, both the country blues and the Destile movement represented a new beginning of music and art. Perhaps for the rest of eternity, both broke down their respective arts to its very core. You couldn't get much more simple and pure than the Destile school, Jack explained in the 2012 interview with a magazine I can't pronounce. And, uh... People is the magazine. (laughs) Greg Basie, who managed uh, promotions for the Magic Stick, was really impressed at the reference in the title and the design in Distil. So, obviously, Jack is seeming very highbrow to the Detroit crowd. Yeah. That covers the title. Uh, We move on to the cover here. The artwork is credited to something called Cholomite, or Artes Graficos Pork Cholomite, which is also the art credit on the Upholsterer's Maker of High Grade Sweets release. Hmm. as well as cover art for the Soledad Brothers. Now, it's hard to find information on what the hell Cholamite is, though I think they're affiliated with another art house called Rank Art, but I could not find anything about what they are or who they are. Yeah. The photo was shot by Eric Wheeler, or E. Wolf, who also did work with the Dirt Bombs, Rocket 455, and a bunch of others. He played drums with the Dirt Bombs on and off from about 97 to 2001, and he's on that album Horndog Fest that Jim was talking about during our interview. Yeah. Via the Metro Times, E-Wolf is sometimes known as Eric Wheeler, and he played drums for Angry Red Planet and Cinecide. He's also an accomplished photographer who's taken some of the more classic Dirt Bombs pictures. The horizontal lines represent female, while the vertical lines represent male. 
So another key aspect of the White Stripes group, the male and female dynamic, all of that stuff played into the steel or neoplasticism movement, James. I didn't learn too much about the style of the style in art school. I, I didn't uh, linger too much in that movement. I was more a fan of the Dadaist movement, which would be more simple than some steel stuff, but not as pure. Mm. The whole point of Dada is to uh, get rid of meaning and i think jack was trying to find lots of meaning and i think the style works in what jack's trying to do it's making simple shapes with simple colors and creating something beautiful and big without too much complexity it's interesting yeah i've always admired it as much as people point to it saying i could do that in that art movement. I think that's one of the biggest things in a modern art place is people look at that style type of artwork, the squares and lines uh, of solid color and go, I can do that. What is so special about that? When they're missing the point of, you didn't think of doing that. Somebody thought of doing that and put meaning behind that. And I think that goes to what Jack White is trying to do with the white stripes is he's doing something simple that you could do like Meg's drumming isn't extraordinary, but he is using her as some kind of catalyst to create something with meaning and something that he finds beautiful. So it's interesting. It's an interesting choice. And I think it fits very well. Yes. I think if we were walking through a museum, we might hear some people saying, Oh, I could do that. I could do that. Well, yeah, that's the point. You could do that. The point of art is partly in the display. It's showing and calling it art. And Jack was kind of doing that exact same thing with Meg. That's a really excellent observation. With that, we move to the track by track. James, you ready to get into this? Let's get to the track by track. All right, track one. You're pretty good looking. track and it is a pop song from the white stripes yeah via the av club de steel is first and foremost a pop rock album but like its parenthetical title of its introductory track you're pretty good looking for a girl there are a number of qualifiers to that statement (laughs) this one clocks in at a cool one minute 50 seconds the shortest song on the album and one of several tracks on the album under two minutes yeah so again a very poppy simple record There's a cool rendition of this one on the Peel Sessions. I tend to like the live cuts of this track a little bit better. James, I don't know about you. Yeah, he does a little uh, quick jaunty version sometimes of you're pretty good looking for a girl. You know, that kind of stuff, which dives a little more into the pop realm, which I like and and I think is, is interesting. Good 
This is uh, via Song Facts. Third Man Records co-founder Ben Swank told Uncut Magazine this represented a turning point for the band. Quote from Ben, This song felt like a real moment for me at the time. I'd heard Jack play it before it ended up on To Steal, and that's when I realized, holy shit, we've got a f***ing pop song writer on our hands. <laughs> There'd been glimpses of that with songs like Sugar Never Tasted So Good and more mellow things, but this was a full-on, straight-up pop tune for a band that was being constantly described as a garage rock band. Mm. I knew the White Stripes were special from the first time I saw them, but this was a very real turning point and a huge benchmark for a small, weirdo garage band from Detroit. And I think it's telling, James, that they put this pop song as the first track on this album. Trying to get the attention of a wider audience. Yes, I think it's being transparent about that, as a matter of fact. It's definitely a little like, hey, look at this commercial thing I can do, which may play into some of the insecurities Jack was feeling at the time. The song appears in the movie The Hot Chick in 2002, starring Rob Schneider. (laughs) (coughs) Why? Rob Schneider, derp-de-derp. Derp-de-derpity-derpy-derp. Until one day, derp-a-derp-a-derp-a-derp. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, that makes sense. James, that version was a cover version of the song by Whirlwind Heat. What? Yeah, it's really, really weird. Well, you're pretty good Is okay. There's little embellishments here and there which are interesting. Yeah, there's not a lot else to be said about that uh, particular soundtrack album, although it does feature a tune by Len in there, which you'll remember for the hit song Steal My Sunshine. Yes, no, I remember that one quite well. Rob Schneider is da derp de derp de diddly derpy derpy derp. Rated PG 13. Via Stripespedia, Jack White is quoted as saying, I think the catchiest things. Of the stuff we've written, like You're Pretty Good Looking, on our second album, it's just the most natural thing. I didn't sit down and figure it all out. I don't think it can be faked. So he's saying it sort of came naturally. And, uh, James, for this record, I went through and tallied the different times... Well, I did. The setlist.fm website went through and tallied all of the different times Jack has played certain songs live. Yeah. And so I included that in these different song-by-song listings here and jack has played this one a total of 241 cataloged times good god i don't know if i can recall him playing this when we saw him live many times i don't know if i ever heard him play this i don't think he played it with blunderbuster lazaretto uh, but obviously he played it a load of times with the stripes i've always liked the song i never thought much of it though it's never been one of my favorites but i always enjoy it and i hear it and yeah it's always been a signifier of I'm about to listen to the entire album of Steal because Steal is about a half hour. <laughs> yeah, I listened to this album quite a few times for that reason. It's pretty short. James, that's followed up by one of my favorite Jack songs, Hello Operator. <laughs> Hello 
Stripespedia, Jack says of Hello Operator, that's the kind of thing I care about, like Hello Operator from our second album. That's a phone company finger-pointing song. Eh. I hate the rip-off company. I know everyone has to have a job, everyone has to work and get a paycheck to keep everything going, but it's pathetic that the better mousetrap doesn't win out. I had no idea that this one was a basically a big three killed my baby 2.0 damning the phone company. <laughs> This is a big three killed my baby, like, 0.05. Like, this is <laughs> way before automobiles. Like, it's Jack getting mad at telegraphs. Like, I... <laughs> like, is this the start of his cell phone hatred? You know, it might be, dude. It might be. Has he been asking an operator to get him numbers from his <laughs> cell phone this whole time? Maybe that's why he hates them. No joke, though. Like, this may be the root of that. Uh, I don't know. Via, this is via Song Facts. The lyrics are based on an elementary school song that students sing while playing in schoolyards. And uh, Beck is a big fan of this track. He told Uncut, I feel like this is one of those songs where it's like Jack White just bypassed the song and went straight to the feeling you want to have, where it's so raw and righteous and where people go, okay, now we're talking. Now we mean business. It's simple. It's heavy. It's beautiful. Hmm courtesy of beck this was released as the only single from Destiel, and that was released in may of 2000 preceding the album's release a month later which i think james big three killed my baby was if i'm not mistaken the only single off the first album so he really picks these you songs yeah for the singles yes he does uh it was backed with jolene a Dolly Parton cover, the group made a staple of their act throughout their career, and this was a version of Jolene, a studio recording recorded at Ghetto Recorders by Jim Diamond, unlike the rest of the album recorded in Jack's home. So Jim actually recorded the First Stripes version of Jolene. Your smile is like a breath of spring And your voice is soft like summer rain And I cannot compete with you, Jolene This song popped up a lot on a later EP, I want to say preceding Icky Thump. Yes. But yeah, it was a B-side from the Hello Operator single. And the, the studio recording is interesting. It lacks some of the energy of the live cut, but uh, is interesting nonetheless. Yeah, the live cut was, like you said, before Icky Thump, but came out to promote Under Blackpool Lights because it, it was a, ah. this, the live cut was from Under Blackpool Lights. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, it was before Icky Thump, but it was in 2004, the live version. So just ah. so that's clear. Um, 
Anyway. Yeah, I remember hearing. It's weird. My memory of that song is having it playing in my headphones on my iPod in Grand Central Station in New York City on the uh, about to catch the train home to New Jersey in college, mm. and thinking that's eh, okay. <laughs> that single was released on Sympathy for the Record Industry, and it was the uh, first and only track to be released as a single. There's a picture disc available for this one featuring Jack and Meg standing in the same set from the album cover with Meg at the fore this time and then both looking off to camera left. One later reissue has a different picture disc with an image of Meg sitting by her drum from the same series as the 7-inch sleeve image. And the single version goes on for a few seconds longer than the album cut of Hello Operator, and you can hear Meg having a problem with her kit saying, I've got butterfingers. (laughs) Which is funny... Because when we talked to Jim, he mentioned tracking the first record was tough because she kept dropping her sticks. Yes. It's all coming together, Jim. (laughs) One of the few songs on the album to feature a guest performer, this time harmonica, contributed by John Szymanski. John was the lead vocalist of The Henchman and good friends with Jack and oft collaborator with Jack, as we know. Mm Mm-hmm. John also played bass in the Detroit Cobras for a little while, which I found interesting. I found some other explanations for the song. The song is basically Jack fighting with old modes of communication, and Meg's little side of the drum tick-tock noises mark the passing of time. So that's when she goes... That is to say, like, that's them waiting for the phone company to fix stuff. I had no idea. I always liked it. It's crazy. Yeah. It is a weird little break in that song, but it's kind of interesting. Via the AV Club, from Jack's opening siren notes on the album's second track, Hello Operator, it's clear that the band is already increasingly confident in its ability. Meg's near-comically simplistic drumming provides the backbone support to her ex-husband's muscular guitar work, a dynamic that would carry the band through four more albums. The White Stripes' previous LP mainly employed Meg as an enthusiastic timekeeper, but DeSteele saw her in a more pivotal role with Hello Operator as case in point. The juxtaposition of her childish drumstick solos between verses may seem trivial, but it only accentuates the pair's bombast while playing together. As the track fades out to arguably the most satisfyingly palm-muted guitar tone in music history, the band declares that this is not one of man's vanity projects, but a tug-of-war between purposeful minimalism and innovation. Meg's involvement would only increase as time went on, seeing her with more prominence on white blood cells and even supply lead vocals on elephants in the cold cold night so that's all the mm. av club the song was used in a variety of places james including an ad for converse sneakers did you know this no i had no idea i'm assuming it's because jack loves commercialism so much and converse <laughs> sneakers hate the phone company Converse notoriously despises phone calls. It's actually a really cool commercial and features a lot of slow-motion cityscape imagery and a militaristic procession of basketball players who appear to be coaxing an older athlete out of retirement. Hmm. It was part of a 2010 campaign, and there's a whole press release here, which I am now realizing I do not need to read. They're very excited to be working with the White Stripes here. Uh, Meg is credited on the track with drums and, quote, sand... And Jack is credited with guitar, vocals, and, quote, rubbing wood. Wow. All right. I think all that is sex stuff. Perhaps. Maybe. Could be. It's made Stereo Gum's 2014 top Jack Tunes list at number seven. 
back in 2014. You can count on one hand the number of times Jack ceded the spotlight to someone else during his Stripes tenure, and it was usually for something slightly confounding. Meg's lead in The Cold Cold Night, Mort Krim's Little Acorns monologue. When he briefly steps aside in Hello Operator, though, it makes complete sense, but it's no less surprising, as in John Szymanski's blistering harmonica bum rush can literally startle you. His clinically efficient cameo is the connective tissue linking this brittle yet bouncy blues update with a jamming on the piano past, making for an inspired moment in harmony. Wow. It is blistering, James. It is a hard-to-ignore harmonica solo. I've ignored it long enough, Paul. John Peel, champion of the White Stripes in the UK, listed it as his song of the week, even though it wasn't released in the UK. And it wasn't a week. (laughs) It shows up on the Peel Sessions release as well, which is funny because Jack had already closed the set with Bull Weevil when John asks him to play more. Jack hesitates... This is an OCD crisis, obviously, on his part, because he had already stopped the show with Bull Weevil, and then suggests to Meg that they play this one. And you can hear it. I'll play that here. Thank you very much, Mr. Peel, for having us here. Hey, come on, are you kidding? It's been fantastic, an unforgettable night. You, we've got time for you to do some more, if you've got any more tunes that you'd oh, like to do. I don't do. know what we could play. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Have I put you on the spot, or would no. you like would you like to do a couple more? No, I, uh, I think we can do some. How about a song called Hello Operator? Yeah! Yeah. Right. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Jack's like, uh, I, okay. (laughs) We only have five more songs. But he's like, I felt like Jack the whole time wanted to say like, but you don't, but, but we finished. Like, but we just did Bull Weevil. Like, that means we're done. (laughs) And John Peel's like, we have like a bunch of time here. Do you want to play more songs? And he's like, uh, uh. The single was reissued later via Third Man, and he played live a total of 174 cataloged times. Yikes. So less than, yes, less than you're pretty good looking. James, that brings us to track three, Little Bird. Ah, Little Bird. Love this song. James, you talked about this one on our Thanksgiving episode this year. I did, very briefly, yes, because it's a bird, and Thanksgiving celebrates the eating of a turkey. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's very fitting. 
This is a Jack penned blues track, which sounds like the covers he was playing at the time. Jack said of this one, quote, When we recorded that song, we both, and I, it's him and Meg, we both said, people are going to say this sounds like Led Zeppelin. But I loved that riff so much, we just had to put it to record. And when you hear it, James, it does sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I didn't make that connection until you just said that. But yeah, I can hear it for sure. There's a few songs on this album that, that have a Zeppelin under and overtone. This is via a website called One Week, One Band. They say of this song as a single song and maybe the fullest realization of that feeling on any of the White Stripes' first three albums. But taking each of the albums as a whole, they are pretty close to perfect. Funny, loud, perverse, and surprisingly emotionally affecting. Little Bird is the White Stripes' original brand of straight blues. As it appears on De Steel, settled after two funny, full-blast opening songs, and just before the disarmingly sweet-sounding Apple Blossom, it's a song that can take a while for you to notice. It opens quietly, the tiniest clink of Meg's cymbals, and then a repeated guitar riff from Jack. Over this comes an opening statement of remarkably flat delivery. I got a little bird. The drums and guitar become ever more intrusive, taking over entirely at the end of the first verse, as the singer concludes his statement, put her in a cage and disconnect the phone. And then, with the final verse, panic at what is slipping through his fingers completely. Even as he imagines himself locking the door and hiding the key for himself alone, when I get you home, this is how it goes. I'll never let you go, he says, knowing that what he wants can never belong to him with the certainty that he wishes. The song ends as flatly as it began, guitar riff and then a small closing splash of drums. The lyrics are uh, kind of terrifying if you read into them, because you could definitely replace bird uh, with the uh, British slang term bird for lady, and it makes things a little, little frightening. Probably also indicative of his re- relationship status at the time. Mm. Uh, the lyrics being, I got a little bird, I'm going to take her home, put her in a cage, and disconnect the phone. If you give me a look, I'm going to get the book. I'm going to preach the word. I want to preach to birds. My name is Jack. This is my sister, Meg. On the drums. We are from southwest Detroit, Michigan. In the United States of America. St. Francis, and this song concerns him, and it's called A Little Bird. As I walk the floor, yeah, this I know. When I get you home, this is how it goes. I got nothing to lose. I'll never let you go. It sounds a little like he's scared of losing someone, perhaps. Yeah. And getting a little crazy in his own head about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, wanting to preach to them or teach them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Now, Meg, this is the Destino movement. You're going to love this. <laughs> the horizontal lines are female. Those are for you. <laughs> I painted this candy cane in the corner for you, Meg. <laughs> we have fun. I like this song. Not one of my all-time favorites, but I do like it. Jack played this one a catalog total of 96 times live, so that's ticking down. Hmm. Yeah, no, he's playing songs less and less, it seems. Mm -hmm. James, that's followed by a very popular song from Jack, Apple Blossom, track number four. Ah, yes. Hey, little apple blossom, what seems to be the problem? All the ones 
Can't you tell your troubles too They don't really care for you Come and tell me what you're thinking Cause just when the boat is sinking A little light is blinking And I will come and rescue you Lots of girls walk around in tears But that's not for you Similar in title and in theme to uh, the song, which I'm sure you'll get to it soon, Apple Blossom Time, which he will play yes. live as well. Good song. It's a piano ballad from Jack. Yet another key departure for this album. Mm-hmm. Obviously a favorite of Jack's because he does like to play this one and return to it often. Apple Blossom Time, James, as you say, is famously one of Jack's favorite flat duo Jets tunes, which is either consciously or subconsciously a key aspect of its visual uh, in the song itself. Although Apple Blossom Time was a song originally written by the Andrews sisters in 1941 and charted at number five. If you don't remember the Andrews sisters, you probably remember the song Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, their biggest hit also in 41. Are they related to the Del Ruvio triplets? (laughs) I want to say yes. It's the heavenly intonations of the Del Rubio triplets! They sold 75 million records throughout their career, which is like, it's like one of those crazy, stupid high statistics. You're like, how did that happen? And you're like, it's 1941. Everybody's gaga about the Andrews sisters. Crazy. <laughs> Blossom Time, James, you'll remember from several shows we've talked about Apple Blossom Time, uh, the most notably of which being the Flat Duo Jets show, where we talked about Jack playing that song live at the Under Amazonian Lights show in Brazil, which was uh, recorded, I want to say, the day he got married or the the day after or something like that. So that song, obviously, that held some meaning for him in his marriage to Karen Elson Mm -hmm. in 2005, James. Yes. Via the AV Club, Jack croons atop a saloon-style piano, a production flourish soon to be on numerous future releases from the band. The song Apple Blossom was used in Quentin Tarantino's film The Hateful Eight. Yes. And is included on the official soundtrack. James, I know you've spoken before in the past that that song sticking out kind of like a sore thumb on that record because we know it so well. Yes. And so it's weird hearing it out in the wild, as it were. Yeah, I feel the need, if I'm ever watching that movie with others, to uh, point out, hey, that's the White Stripes. And uh, to, <laughs> to 
just crickets every time. This made Stereo Gum's 2014 list of all-time best Jack songs at number eight, of which they said the White Stripes could melt the paint off walls, but they were also masters of subtlety. Take Apple Blossom. I've always thought it was White's shrouded commentary on the implied ulterior motives of any man's swooping in to comfort a crying woman. As the protagonist offers to rescue a troubled gal, he's deviously twirling his mustache. This feeling hangs around until the last line when he says, I think I'll marry you, when we realize he was sincere all along, unless he wasn't. That constant, subtle conflation of what's genuine and what's misdirection was the band's most inimitatable quality. Mm. Uh, this is via Stripespedia. In May 2001, a teacher taught her first and second grade students this song and sent the resulting video to Jack White, of which Jack later said, I started crying. Aww. This teacher, she played songs for her kids, and she taught them this song. It's really great, I thought. You can't top that. If it's gotten to that, how can you top that? How are you going to top yourself, Jack? <laughs> so, James, we may see the sequel to the We're Gonna Be Friends book, I want to say, maybe with Apple Blossom. It would be welcome. Via song facts. The song has no chorus, which lets Jack advance the story. A girl he likes has been hurt by a man who doesn't deserve her, and he tries to comfort her. As the song builds, so do his ambitions. And by the last line, he's all in. I fall in love with you. I think I'm married. It's not clear what the Apple Blossom thinks of this guy, but there's a good chance she finds him more than a little creepy. This was the first song the White Stripes performed on television. They played it when they appeared on that Detroit public television series Backstage Pass in 2000, which, James, I think we had talked about, oh, I want to say on the first episode of the podcast in the Big Three Killed My Baby discussion. Yes, I want to say so. Because it was sponsored by Chrysler, I want to say. Yeah. And then they they, they put it up on Jack White's website for a time. That's right. Before the Acoustic Recordings album came Mm -hmm. out, that was on the website. Mm -hmm. Jack has lots of affection for this song and often played it live with the Stripes and as a solo act a total of 204 times. Obviously, he likes it. And I like it very much, too, James. I think it's a sweet song. Uh, And so far, all the songs we're talking about here I find to be very strong in terms of Jack's songwriting. And Apple Blossom is a nice nice little piano ditty. And for those of you keeping score at home, Apple Blossom is the song that we based our theme song around. If you listen to the Third Men podcast theme song, it's basically just Apple Blossom. And I just want you to know I'm on the website universeofsymbolism.com, which seems oh so holistic, and I love it. (laughs) Uh, Apple Blossom flowers have a lot of different meanings behind them. Uh, Apparently they are the symbol of hearts, pleasures, and delights. The magic Uh of this flower is its ability to transform your mood and lift your spirits, to raise your vibrations. Apple blossom is aligned to the heart chakra, and the numerology numerology for the apple blossom is four, Paul. The number is four. All those with four, four four is the winner. Four Four is the winner. And apple blossoms are also white, which is sticking to Jack White's color aesthetic theme there you go well jack loves numerology as we know but he hates four he loves three apple blossom is wrong frog is wrong (laughs) quick what's your favorite animal (laughs) i i don't know frog frog well i I, frog is wrong (laughs) well that guy was bound to pack it up Uh, Ah, which leads us to track five i'm bound to pack it up
straightforward love song the mutant blues book connects this one to mccartney tracks mm. from the white album uh, which you can hear in mother nature's son and that would be something from mccartney's first solo album which jack himself would play nine years later for paul at the white house yes and i can hear a lot of mccartney in that for sure yeah jack is credited with double bass on this which is basically just a stand-up bass and uh, meg is credited with red egg shaker and floor tom so basically she's on the floor with a shaker and a drum bashing it. Nice. Another guest appearance on the album takes place with this song. That would be Paul Henry Ossie, who is credited with violin. Paul is Jack's cousin and frequent musical collaborator. Hmm. Ossie was part of the band Catalyst along with members of Jack's family, which you may remember, James, or maybe not. There was an episode we did, which I, I want to say it was like Jack the Drummer or something, where, or no, I think it was the Dominic Davis interview. Yeah, I tried to find Catalyst songs and could not find them. Checked with the TMRC, nothing, nada. Don't know where to find it, but would love to know if there's Catalyst music out there. So if anyone has knowledge of where, I would love that. I feel like the dark web, the deep web, does that have... Yeah. Yeah. Via Stripes PDA Catalyst was formed by and is primarily composed of a few of Jack's older brothers, Eddie Gillis, Joe Gillis, R. Leo Gillis... And um, Paul Henry Ossie and the late guitarist Max Mega, uh, and also various drummers, including Brian Muldoon of the Upholsters and uh, Mike Mendez and Jack himself. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> via Empire from the Blues, Ossie's violin adds to the feel of a pastoral Led Zeppelin track, another Led Zeppelin reference here, as Jack finds a runway from a love both lovers know has run its course mm. the bus is warm and softly lit he sings affectionately as the greyhound pulls away from his past like his film class favorite the graduates ending turned unhappy the song ends with the strum of resolve song facts in this song jack white sings about how his girl doesn't love him anymore and his plans to pack it up and leave jack and meg were husband and wife until they divorced just a few months before the distill album was released but they kept a firm barrier between their personal and professional lives remaining together as a band for another 11 years more likely i'm bound to pack it up was inspired by the blues songs jack loved by the likes of john lee hooker and sunhouse many of those songs have similar storylines and according to Jack White, when Meg heard this song, she asked if he was sure he wanted to include it on the album since it, quote, sounded a lot like Led Zeppelin. Hmm. Wow. It does sound a lot like Zeppelin 3, for sure. 
And then this is uh, one of several Steel songs to be remixed and included in the 2016 Acoustic Recordings 1998-2016 LP. And there's a cool cover of this by Earl Clifton Radio. I'm sorry to leave you all alone Your city's silent by the phone But we've always known there would come a day And that bus is warm and softly lit There's a hundred people riding I guess I'm just another running away I'm gonna pick it up I'm gonna pick it up Jack only played this one a cataloged number of four times live. Hmm. James, I think we're going to have to leave it there for this episode. I think we're going to have to do a two-parter. It's something that we didn't want to necessarily do because we're now a bi-weekly schedule, but these episodes, they pack a lot of punch, and I think we're bound to pack this punch up. Them up, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're pretty good looking for podcaster well thank you james and <laughs> i think with i think with that we're gonna throw it to our third woman for this week let's throw it to our third woman all right we'd like to welcome our third woman this week callie durga callie you're back can you settle this once and for all for us callie should we go with tam or should we go with callie James and I had a spirited debate about it. Um, it ended in uh, a fist fight, like all good debates do. It doesn't matter to me. So many people know me from the vault and message boards and, and so forth as, as Callie Dorga. And uh, even when they meet me and know that what my real name is, they still call me Callie. So you can call me whatever you want as long as you don't call me late for dinner. Ah. Ah. It's great to have you back regardless, Callie. I'm going to stick with Callie. I, <laughs> we're past the threshold at this point. It's yeah, been <laughs> it's been Cali for what sixty three episodes or what have you. We've gone too far, but it's great to have you back. We're we're excited to talk with you again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show because you're ever so knowledgeable and uh, definitely way ever better so at obsessed. way better at this than uh, than we are. <laughs> uh, James, glad to hear your voice is back. I've been editing this episode, and your sultry, weird rasp. Has mm, been quite, yeah. A, quite, yeah. Give me some vocal fry. Radio voice. Yep, yeah. that's there. It is there. It is. So that's welcome the back, James. One right there. So, Callie, we've got you on the show today to do a little redemption from the year in review show, where we had technical difficulties, both large and small. We had them all, and uh, you were not able to join us uh, that night. And uh, so, we wanted to go through some of the awesome 2017 third man events. That you went through, and just going over these now before the call, wow, you did a lot of stuff this year, third man related. So, I mean, really starting at the very beginning of the year, should we should we start there? Should we start on New Year's? That seems appropriate, considering today is New Year's Day. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this time last year, I was uh, recovering from a night with the Soledad Brothers and the Dirt Bombs. Wow, that's nice. awesome. Yeah, at the Magic Stick in Detroit. Um, so it wasn't specifically Third Man related, but it was 
satellites in the Jack White universe. Let's put yeah. it that way. Ben Swank's um, in the Soledad Brothers, no? Yes, he, he's the drummer for the Soledad Brothers, and Ben Blackwell is one of the two drummers for the Dirt Bombs. Yeah. So they're they're definitely part of the uh, quote unquote family. Um, yes. And any you know anybody who's into Jack's music or Third Man definitely should be exploring both the Soledad Brothers and the Dirt Bombs. Yes, Mick uh, Collins, who heads up the Dirt Bombs, he, he was one of the three piece in the Gories. Yes. Yes. And they have a large mural of the Gories, if I'm remembering correctly, in Third Man Cast Corridor. Yeah, it's um, they've got the big photos on the wall of yes, okay. um, the Gories, the White Stripes, and is it the Stooges or the MC5, I think? Yeah. Obviously, Jack holds a lot of reverence for Mick. Oh, yeah, yeah. James, I think you had played some audio from when they were toasting to those bands last year at the mm-hmm. Detroit. Yes, it was the Cast Corridor Cast corridor opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess still on good terms, Jack and Mick, I, I hope. It may be blasphemy to say it, but I think I actually enjoy them more than the Gories. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I love Mick Collins singing, and he actually sings more yeah. in, the, in the Dirt Bombs rather than, you know, the loud, screaming punks, punk sound of the, the Gories. Yeah, it's more. That's more to my taste too. Yeah, I need to. I need to learn more about the band. I, I love them to death, but I haven't taken the time to to learn as much about them as I should. So mm-hmm. I don't know who the various members have been over the years, aside from Mick and Ben Blackwell and Co. Molina. Zydeco, right? Yeah. Tell us about the show because that sounds like an awesome show. And and I. Uh, I mean, we should say for the listeners, I've never been to the Magic Stick. James, uh, unless you took some weird flight by night out to Detroit, has not been to the Magic Stick either. Although the Magic Stick is a sort of legendary venue for the Detroit rock scene. It was that and the Gold Dollar. Like, those were the two, those were the big ones. And the Magic Bag, too, I believe. Yeah. The Magic Stick is, like, right up the street from where the Gold Dollar was. So those two were definitely very important because they were, you know, they were so close together. And the, the Magic Stick is connected to the bowling alley where apparently... You know, everybody hung out at the bowling alley. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> when, they when they weren't putting on shows. Um, yeah, so it was, it was pretty amazing to, you know, see a show in that place that has so much history with those bands that were part of that history. And, you know, like Yvette talked about last week with the um, Cavern Show about one of the things that makes these experiences so special is being with friends. Right. You know, we, we met up with several of our friends for that show. Yvette was also there and a couple of our other friends. So it was just a really incredible experience on multiple levels. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But it was it was so cold. It was I really got a, <laughs> a taste for what Detroit is like in the winter. Um, not sure I'll ever do New Year's there again. Yeah. But uh, inside the Magic Stick, it was pretty phenomenal. It, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it opened with a band called the Prude Boys, which are one of the really good bands on the Detroit scene these days. Cool. And then uh, followed up with the Soledads, and then the Dirt Bombs closed out the night and uh, played all, you know, all my favorite songs from that band, um, the ones that, you know, that I know. So it's like a, was it, it was a retrospective set, or was there new material in there? Don't think I heard anything that was new. Okay. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, I think I recognized pretty much every song, so it was... Yeah. Mostly stuff that they've done before, but I don't, I don't know that they would have thought about it as a retrospective so much. Yeah, I've heard that Mick is working on new material, but I don't think, I don't think I remember that they played anything I didn't recognize. Gotcha. One of the coolest things was how the show ended. Actually, mm. it started out with the band members one at a time leaving the stage. Mick left first, 
and then um, Ko Melina and the other bass player, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, they switched instruments and each, they were like trading off solos and, and such. And then one of them left, and then the next one left, and then it was just Blackwell and the other drummer, huh. who I think is Pat Pantone, I think is his name. And then that drummer left, and Blackwell was the last one on the stage, <laughs> going just on and on and on and on, playing and playing and playing and playing and playing and playing and playing. And then, and then he finally just got up and walked off. And it, it, it was it was a great end to the night. Wow, that's amazing. Is that after midnight, yeah. or is that before... Yeah, no, that was after midnight. They played Old Lang Syne and then played a couple more songs as an encore, but definitely a a phenomenal show. The place was packed. Yeah, I can imagine. As you'd expect. I mean, I didn't really look around and see, like, if there were any people that I would recognize from the quote-unquote scene. Yeah. Because I was right up at the front, but uh, I'm sure there were a lot of people there that, you know, like the the bigwigs in the Detroit scene. Sure. Yeah. I was going to ask, and I don't know... I mean, you're up there certainly enough to probably provide some context for this. But you know, I know in in the circles we sort of talk in, Mick is Mick and what he did, and the Dirt Bombs and and what he did in the Gories is talked about with a lot of reverence. Uh, though I wonder what modern Detroit really knows about. Is he treated like royalty there? Or yeah, I really don't know. I mean, he lives in I believe he lives in Brooklyn now. Oh wow! And oh. has for the okay. last few years. Yeah. All right. If you go on Twitter and look for at Broken Headphones, oh yeah, yeah, you can mm. follow his Twitter feed. He's quite prolific. We've we have tweeted. Yeah. We're waiting on a we're we're waiting on a private message, but yeah, we have tweeted. Yeah. Oh boy, I hope you hear back from him. It'd be so awesome if you could get him on the show. But yeah, he uh, according to his Twitter feed, it sounds like he lives in in Brooklyn these days. So I have no idea what his relationship is to Detroit these days. I'm sure there's sure. still a connection, but uh, if the new generation recognizes him walking down the street, I have no idea. Mm. I think, you know, we're going to be getting a lot more Jack White connections to Brooklyn in this coming year, obviously because half of his boarding house reach band are Brooklynites, I believe. Right? They're at least they... based in New York, yeah. Right, yeah. Do we know which band he's actually going to be touring with, though? That's the thing. Do we know if he's I mean, even touring? Yeah, I mean, half half the recording band might have been from New York, and the other half seemed to be right. from other places, so... That's kind of what I meant by that, is, like, we're going to be learning much more about that group, I think, and we're going to be learning a, yeah, a little yeah, more yeah. about what they're doing, and we know at least one of them, because one of them is the ghost of a saber-toothed tiger woman who mm-hmm. was in the duo with Sean Lennon, and I know she's definitely in Brooklyn. So anyway, that was a roundabout way of saying, I think the Brooklyn rock thing is going to be infecting the third man family a lot more in this coming year which i'm happy about you know because that's you know it's fun yeah no i always enjoy learning about all the new musicians that he works with it's kemp mule paul by the way is, is charlotte kemp mule here yeah. yeah that wasn't all you did this year Callie. that is just but the first uh and i guess we're gonna go in chronological order i guess the pressing plant opening oh yeah that's right I forgot about that. Yeah, I keep thinking that that was before 2017 because it feels like it was so long ago at this point. That's right. That's and I get it confused with the cast opening, too. They're around the same yeah, time. I think it was, it was in February and um, met up with a lot of the same friends who cool. were at the New Year's Eve show. Mm-hmm. Did not stand outside in the cold the way so many other people did. Yeah. But because um, it was, again, it was freezing <laughs> um so everything you've heard about detroit winters is true yeah. we'll verify yeah. it but it was it was so exciting to be there for that because i mean i missed the the cast corridor store opening 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I really had to be there for the pressing plant opening because that, I don't want to use the word culmination. I don't want to say it's the culmination of like everything Jack has, has always been working towards because that implies that there's nothing else for him to do. You know, the culmination is yeah. like the pinnacle. Right. And right. God knows he's he's got tons more plans probably of ways to expand his empire. But uh, <laughs> it's a noteworthy thing because, I mean, for somebody who has talked about vinyl the way he has over the years and yeah, yeah. how excited he was to have his first single made that he, you know, he kept it in the bathroom where he would see it all the time, to be able to make his own records in his own pressing plant i mean that's such a huge deal if jack white were a a television series uh that would be the season finale of that (laughs) particular season would be the pressing plant opening because that's the the pinnacle of that part of what jack was building to of the turntables not dead era of jack Or not big enough. And we, yes, and we would know that there are many seasons yet to come. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I think, it, yeah, like like you guys are saying, it's, in a lot of ways it is the pinnacle of, of what he's been building to in respect to bringing vinyl back and then actually becoming one of the chief manufacturers <laughs> of such said vinyl. <clears throat> what I've been thinking about a lot lately is that it would be gr- it would be great if that was what like let's let's just assume jack goes on playing making albums and stuff but let, let's say his let's say popularity fades let's say let's say this happens that happens but if that was his fate if he was just going to be a record plant like if it if it was like a a guy who cared about music on the inside like that if that was it that's pretty good like he kind of yeah mm-hmm. i mean that'd be fine right <laughs> like mission accomplished yeah yeah i mean yes i agree with with what you're saying yeah i mean he, he put his money where his mouth is basically Right. And, you know, showed everybody that it's not a dead industry. It's not a dead musical format. Right. Are there any highlights from the pressing plant opening that you can remember? They did tours of the plant that day, which Mm -hmm. were, it's basically all one room. So when you walk in, you can see most of it. So they didn't walk us around the different sections. They just took us into the front area that you can see through the window and pointed things out to us and, and... did the explanation of um, how vinyl starts in little PVC pellets and becomes a puck and then gets extruded and pressed and the flashing gets cut off, um, which um, there are a lot of videos out there nowadays that show yes. that. Mm-hmm. That's how we got to experience the plant opening was just mm-hmm. through pe- posting things. And I've seen a bit, at least two walkthroughs from the plant in, in that mm-hmm. regard. And it's fascinating. Yeah. I never knew all that stuff. So I'm really happy they did that because I would have had no idea. Yeah, it's. I mean, I've done the tour of United Record Press in, in Nashville a couple of times, and it really is interesting when you see the mechanical process and and how much people are involved with those machines. Yet it's it's kind of a symbiotic thing. It's not just machines pressing it all out. There are people physically involved every step along the way, and I think that's very cool. That there's a new company in I think it's Denmark, the Netherlands. I can't remember where they did go with a much more more automated process yeah it's very cool and and no surprise that jack kept the more manual process um Mm -hmm. in his plant even more so than like at united record pressing i mean his his staff is is physically you know pushing the button to make the machines press whereas you know you know record pressing it it's slightly more automated than that the um, the machines can press and press and press um without somebody actually having to do something 
but his his staff is physically putting the puck in there and then making the machine do the press and then pulling it out. So he really is emphasizing kind of that that human aspect of making records. Right. That it's it's kind of very very organic feeling. That's that's what I think that's what I'm trying to say. It's it's when you see how they're pressed in his plant, it it's very organic. Um, even though there are machines involved, it's you know the the human element is very important to it. And and to me, that's one of the things that makes records sound better than digital music. I mean, Jack talks about the romance of vinyl, watching the mechanics go around. To me, what I love about records is knowing that they were made by a person. Yeah. There was a person involved in making that. It wasn't just somebody hit it, clicking keys on a computer to spit out a music file. Someone's hands were actually physically involved in in making that product, even though it was pressed by a machine. Right. Um, well, it, it, I mean, it, that's an important distinction, though. Jack is not necessarily a Luddite or an anti-machine, I think what he wants to perpetuate is the interactivity with not just the person creating it, but the person enjoying it. And so it's that mm-hmm. sense of interaction. Uh, exactly. It's much like why he wanted the big glass or whatever. Why he wanted be people to be able to see into the plant making records. Exactly. So, so exactly. it's just about because seeing it, the connection. Yeah, the connection is, that's... That's a really good word for it. You feel it, especially if you're able to go there and look through the window, or even better, if you're able to go at a time when they're doing tours and, and see the machines up close and see how the process works. Right. You really, really do feel that connection, especially when you go out front and get one of those records. And sure. One of the big treats that day was being able to buy pressings of the first two White Stripes albums that had yeah. come off those machines. Yeah. made by those people <laughs> back there in the town they were made in yeah yeah i mean those to me those are the most special record i think those are two of the most special records i own right now yeah. just because mm-hmm. it means so much that the first two white stripes albums were, were some of the first records to be pressed in jack's pressing plant at third man records in cast corridor in detroit there's a lot of meaning to those records i i seriously thought about taking my original pressings of those two records like to a record store and trading them in or something because all I, I feel like all I need now are these two copies that came off those pressing um, pressing machines right, um, right. they just they feel really special when I listen to them so that was definitely a highlight was being able to to get those fantastic um, at the pressing plant opening and thanks to nice. uh, Joe Lalich for uh, picking those up for me <laughs> while yeah, he that was, was there the day that I met Joe no oh, is it really okay yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. I think he had copies of his uh, his little Jack uh, oh, pictures I those, there, and I love those little and, Jacks. Or he showed them to me, or something, and I was like, "Oh, I gotta have those." <laughs> we got in touch on Facebook afterwards so that I could get copies of them. That's great. You went to so much more this year. Uh, we're we're just mm-hmm. gonna go down. The next one up would be the three hundred thirty three feet down show, right? Yeah, which I was gonna talk to you guys about with the with Yvette. Um, mm-hmm. I think she summed it up really well. You know, describing how we got in there accidentally yeah, running. before pretty much everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you. I love that you two did that. I love it so much because that's what that would have been my instinct too. And so I, when she was describing that, I felt like I was right there with you. Yeah, we were there with um, our friends Sharon and Richard and Helen, and and that's just. I mean, that's all of us. That's what we do at the shows. I mean, we just we go because we want to yep. be up front. And yeah, we somehow slipped past uh, when they stopped everybody else. And they stopped us at the entrance to the cavern. And we stood there forever, like Yvette said, waiting. And then uh, 
being able to get in there and have our pick of the seats was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and to really look around and, and see what the cavern looked like uh, before it filled up with everybody else who had been waiting to get in. Anyone out there listening who is wondering how Cali gets such great seats and positioning at shows to be called up on stage and such uh it's mainly running yeah yeah (laughs) it's a running thing (laughs) it's priority but no it's priority though you know yeah that's not gonna get a a 14 dollar long island iced tea you're just getting right up there right in the front well in, in in that case too it's it was also luck the fact that uh everybody else wasn't able to run after us yeah, yeah, and they didn't stop you as soon as you got in there, which is great. Yeah, but yeah, if you want to say it's running, sure, sure. Yeah. So, was there an elevator involved in that? Did Did you have to go down? No. The, it was just. Yeah, there was a. Yeah, there was a very. It's a. It was a very wide path, and okay. you know, very clean, very dry. It wasn't like spelunking or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was very steep at the end. So I'm not sure how anybody who had a you know physical handicap might have dealt with it. I'm sure they must have had some kind of access. But for the rest of us, it involved making it down a very steep hill to where the seating area was underneath this incredible chandelier. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the venue, but uh, there's this gigantic crystal chandelier hanging from the ceiling, which was completely unexpected. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently came from a movie theater in Brooklyn. So again, Brooklyn connection. Ha ha. Yeah. But that, yeah, I spent a lot of time staring at that chandelier while we were waiting for the show to begin. (laughs) Gorgeous. Yeah, it sounded like it was a, a great show. I mean, I think me and Paul would have would have been super pleased just to see a Margot Price show down there. But you guys got to see mm-hmm. several bands there, including the Craig Brown Band and Craig Brown uh, Band, Josh Headley, Lily May, yeah, and, yeah. and Margot Price. Um, I had no idea that Margot played her entire new album down there. We didn't know it was going to happen either. And before her set began. One of the people from the venue came out uh, before Jack even did his intro of her. They said at the beginning of the show, you know, please put your cell phones and everything away. But then they came out before Margot's set and they really stressed. We're getting ready to do something really special. Please put, you know, your cell phones, cameras, everything away. And my first thought was that, oh, you know, maybe Jack's going to come out. I know. That's what I would have been thinking. I think think a lot of people thought that, yeah. Yeah. But then... Then they announced that she was going to play the album in its entirety, and that was just as good as having Jack come out. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was definitely a really special night, yeah. um, uh, and a really special album. Uh, and uh, the fact that mm-hmm. you got to hear it before everybody else. I was going to comment on because uh, when Yvette was saying that, I was like, "Wow, that's really cool." And I actually did. I did experience that this year. I, I saw Saint Vincent perform her entire new album, but prior to it coming out. And it was mm-hmm. a really great experience because, yeah, I mean, there's you're never going to be in that situation again where it's all new material or all fresh. And to have the person there actually doing it for you is kind of remarkable. And so I really envied um, what you and Yvette and everybody else were able to experience down there because that's really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. It was. It was It was absolutely beautiful. And it was a beautiful setting. It was a small crowd. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, to have something that special was was real it made it a fantastic night um and again with friends um if i had been there by myself it would have been beautiful and special but it wouldn't have been as enjoyable as it was having you know friends that i could turn to afterwards and say oh my god what did we just see (laughs) what did we just hear you know Um, so that that always makes it really fantastic that's the qualifier Uh, it's more that more the connection right 
Uh, and I know uh, Yvette had mentioned that she had gotten the tickets uh, not through Snapchat, but from someone else. Was that someone else you? Did you get it through Snapchat? No, no. Okay. I, I am not a phone, a cell phone person. I am so bad at anything that is done on the cell phone. Um, so I didn't even try. It was our friend Sharon and okay. uh, our friends Sharon and Richard. They managed to get uh, tickets. And um, Yvette and I were their plus ones. Because okay. each person who was able to get tickets had a plus one. That's awesome. So it was thanks to, to their generosity and, and, <laughs> and friendship that we were able to have that fantastic experience. So again, friends. Yeah. The, the, the friends make it special. For me, the highlight of that night was um, as, as special as Margot's set was, Josh Hadley. Yes, if that said that a was revelation. Good too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he, for me, he was a bit of a revelation. I mean, he came out in this incredible. Um, nudie suit, a vintage nudie suit, and I don't know what that means, with... but it sounds yep. <laughs> just, just great. <laughs> yeah, James, James and I were just like, yeah, nudie suit. <laughs> if you look at pictures of the um, of the cavern show, it's a dangerous Google, but I'm doing it. Hold on, yep, hold go on. for it. It's totally safe. Nude cavern. No nudie. <laughs> nudie. <laughs> D-I-E. Ah, uh, okay, Maybe. okay, okay. So it's, it's yeah. a la, like, a, I mean, Elvis wore a lot of them, it seems, but it's it's a very country-looking... I can't looking... remember his first name, but Nudie made all the, oh. the the fancy suits for all the big Nashville stars. Johnny Cash, it looks like. Uh, Loretta Lynn looks like even had one. Yeah, it, um, I think he even made one for Graham Parsons that was pretty famous. But Josh Hadley's voice yeah. was absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the acoustics there were so incredible. I, um, I'm so happy that my first experience of his music was in that place with such phenomenal acoustics because it just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, mm. And I am so excited for his record with Third Man to come out. I think it might be his first... I think he's done singles and EPs before maybe, but uh, I think this is going to be his, possibly his first full-length record. I don't think me and Paul are too familiar with him, so we should play a, a music drop here. Just a stand-up angel who won't back down. Nobody's fool and nobody's clown. Because you're smarter than that. My favorite picture of you is the one way He's definitely somebody to watch for. I don't know yet when the record's coming out. He posted a picture of the test pressing recently mm-hmm. on um, Facebook and Instagram or Twitter, wherever. I, for one, am definitely very excited for this record. Um, I think he's he's going to be a, a great addition to the Third Man roster. Awesome. So speaking of the roster here, we got two more to mm-hmm. get to. I think the next one chronologically would be the Halloween Haunted Hop and Devil's Night, right? Yeah, at the end of October, I... Um, told my boss back in February that I needed vacation time at Halloween because I just had a feeling that Third Man was going to do something. 
um, mm-hmm. either at Nashville or it seemed more likely they would do it in Detroit because they've already done three of those events in Nashville and mm-hmm. Detroit's been there for what, two years now and it was time and sure enough um, it turned out to not only be time for them to do it in Detroit it turned out to be the anniversary of Italy Records as well yeah. so I am very glad I made that uh, vacation request back in February <laughs> I'm sure in the back of your mind, you're thinking, am I going to get an album announcement and maybe a performance? <laughs> um, no. no. No, actually, I just I was excited just for Devil's Night because I'm okay. a big fan of Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a big deal for me to be able to, to go to Third Man. But yeah, and then they announced the Haunted Hop the week before. Before they'd even actually announced Devil's Night, they announced the Haunted Hop the yeah. Thursday beforehand with uh, Kid Congo Powers. So I was like, okay. I'm going for that. I bought my tickets because I've been wanting to to see Kid Congo Powers live. And then when they announced Devil's Night, it ended up being a perfect week trip to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bookended by the two events at Third Man. And they were both tons of fun. Um, Kid Congo Powers was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wolfman Band. Wolfman, the Wolfman Band, yes, <laughs> with Dave Buick, which I didn't realize at the time that he was in the band. At one point, uh, when the two lead singers were down in the audience writhing around on the floor, um, the, the <laughs> bass player sat sat down on one of the amps and was, you know, just sitting there playing one-handed, just picking at the bass. And I thought to myself, that is the coolest damn bass player I've ever seen, <laughs> you know, with his Wolfman mask and everything. And then I found out afterward that it was Buick. That's awesome. Uh, videos of them are insane so if anybody hasn't seen uh look up wolfman band on youtube or whatever what have you and uh they are some of the the weirdest most interesting live band acts i've ever seen Mm -hmm. videos of so (laughs) oh they were a ton of fun and then i ended up you know you guys have talked about how i ended up on stage with two friends with Jack at the Masonic Temple. I also ended up singing with Kid Congo Powers at this event. He jumped down, <laughs> oh. off, he jumped down off the stage into the audience for their um, yeah. final song and came up to me and stuck the mic in my face and I got to sing I Walked with a Zombie with him. <laughs> Which, honestly, I have to say, might just be almost as exciting as singing with Jack. Oh, that's uh, nice. <laughs> Very nice. We, we won't tell um, Jack that. No, it's... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think he might enjoy singing with Kid Congo Powers, too. I, I have a feeling yeah. he would. Yeah. He would probably uh, say that's the right choice. Knowing him, yes. he'd be like, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. Definitely, uh, definitely an insanely fun night. And then uh, Devil's Night uh, the following Monday was also an absolute blast. Um, it seemed like everybody in the Third Man family was celebrating extensively let's put it mm-hmm. that way uh, there's even video there's video online of um blackwell's inter- introduction where uh he even says he's had too much champagne they found me on the men's room floor <laughs> so it was really it, it almost felt like we were kind of crashing this sure. you know this this family party or something uh thank you everyone for coming out my name is ben um Champagne, cool. Uh, I don't really drink. This is odd. Because they were obviously all having such a good time. Right. Were Jack and Olivia in attendance on that? Or um, I didn't see them, if they were. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I they mean, might he, have been... He was doing those like pretty consistently for a while there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I expected him to be there because it seemed like such a big deal the first Devil's Night right. there. But uh, if he was, he stayed in the back the whole time, or okay. was in some sort of really really elaborate disguise with uh, costume, which is sounds likely the yeah, more we, I'm thinking about it. Yeah. He, Yvette and, and our friend Colleen, we were all looking uh, pretty closely at everybody that walked by and it was yeah. up on the catwalk and everything to, to <laughs> see if we could see him. And, uh, any wild raconteurs out there, like any Keelers or Lawrences or Bensons? No, nah, it, it seemed to be... I don't. Did I see Brendan? Might have seen Brendan, I can't remember now. The Solo Dad Brothers played again, Rocket 455 and The Henchmen, so it was... Again, like the New Year's Eve thing, it felt like a kind of a historic thing, being able to see these bands that sure. have not been around, right. who came back and played just for this this event. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, and so that would lead us to our, your last Jack-related event this year, which was the We're Going to Be Friends signing in New York City um, yes. back in November. And obviously we've talked about that a lot, and I believe we included a segment of your story in a previous show. But can you tell us a little bit, about how your how the interaction with Jack went there and any any highlights you want to share? I almost actually didn't go up on the stage to to sign because to me that's not really meeting Jack. I mean, my idea yeah. of meeting someone is having a conversation that you both remember, mm-hmm. and those those kinds of meet and greets are always so awkward. Um, yeah. But my friend, one of my friends who I didn't know was going to be there, who surprised me, and by showing up talked me into it um and i'm glad i did it was just as awkward as i expected (laughs) i'm not sure if we even made eye contact um he held out his hand to shake hands with the sharpie in it so it was like okay how do i hold your hand with a sharpie in the way um but it was still so much fun i mean just watching him read to the kids and seeing how excited kids were and uh just kind of feeling the energy and everything it was it was definitely worth it, and I really, really enjoyed it. It just—it was an event that felt good. We, James and I have been postulating about what the next book might be because I have a feeling there's going to be more here. And we talked about maybe Apple Blossom would be a logical next step. Oh, mm. for another kids book? Yeah, yeah. At least possibly. That's an interesting idea. That could be very cute. It's got enough uh, child-friendly language, which is something mm-hmm. that's not always. Yeah. In Jackson, and it's got a positive kind of feeling for the most part. It would certainly it, be more appropriate than "Cut Like a Buffalo." <laughs> yeah, or "Death Letter Blues." You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> that would be very cool if he if he did a um, a kids book of blues music because he he made a point at the the New York True. book signing to hold up the page showing Sunhouse singing about the walking mm-hmm. blues. So Aww. I think that would be very cool if he did That's something true. blues music yeah. related. As long great. as, uh, and I know me and Paul discussed uh, this song in, in this episode that this will be appearing in, but uh, as long as he doesn't do Little Bird, because uh, I, like, <laughs> I feel like that one would have some interesting questions for, for, from kids to parents reading yeah. the book. Now, now he, he insists that that's about St. Francis of Assisi. Does he really? It, oh, Paul's well, eyes he, just went wide. He said, he said it once or twice. <laughs> I could not find anything about that, but once again, you've proven... Your Caliness, and uh, I think caliber. <laughs> you, your caliber, and pointing that out in the episode, which we would have needed it to be in, is a great, <laughs> great way to uh, to wrap it up here. And to thank you once again for joining us on the show. Uh, as you can see, we desperately need your help to keep, <laughs> oh, to no. keep it together. 
You guys are finding some great stuff when you research. You've found a bunch of stuff that I wasn't familiar with, and I always enjoy that because it gives me things to go and explore. Which is nice that you explore it because you explore a little more thoroughly than we do. Uh, I'll, uh, I told you, everybody uh, who listens, that a guy was dead, and he's not no. definitely 100% not <laughs> dead. I not found who that was. We, that there, we thought right, there is a guy... There is a guy that there is a man, both. a certain man, a certain man, <laughs> just by his actions than, of being dead. Are <laughs> is there more than one Robert Sestock out there in the world? I don't I mean, think I'm so, sure, but, there, but it was like right at the point of the cast opening or something where he, mm-hmm. he a, an artist who had worked in Detroit or Nashville was one of the two mm-hmm. died. And I, I had gotten it confused in my head mm-hmm. and, uh, and yet, I feel like I made it up because neither me nor Paul can find it, but we both remember it. So it's that mandala. Yeah, that kind effect of stuff happens to me all on. the time. I, yeah, I, I find things on the internet and then I want to go back and show it to somebody, and, and it's not there anymore. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's so, the it's the Berenstain totally Bears of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but thank you again, Kelly, for joining us today. Yes. And um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, we're going to talk to you more this year. Uh, hopefully, we won't uh, oversleep by uh, forty-seven minutes and uh, keep you waiting again. So sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it's fine. It's always good to talk to you guys. Well, and I hope uh, you enjoyed your New Year celebrations. I did. I did. I played. <laughs> I played. Uh, I was DJ last night. I I had. I was. Awesome. I was spinning lots of lots of pucks. You know. Um, cool. The uh, that's the, what he calls them. Yeah, spinning some pucks, some flat pucks. Uh, the kids really love the Muppets and Jack White. Let me tell you, they love them. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, thank right. you again, and Happy New Year, and we're going to get back to the show. Here. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Take care. This was a great episode. I learned so much. Uh, we're going to blow through some shout-outs here. First, we would like to thank our third person for this week, Callie Durga. Thank you, Callie. Thank you, Callie. We'd like to give a shout-out to some of our new listeners. And today, we're going to do an all-Facebook edition, Paul. Hell yeah. We got a lot of people liking the page. We got Justin Dougherty. Dougherty out. You remember Star Trek? I barely. Luckin or Lucian... I think Lucian is better uh, and mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm, correct. Mm-hmm. Carvalho. Yeah. We've got Mani Arana. Thank you, Mani. We've got Christy Johnston. That's just like you, Christy Johnston. Always liking our page on, on the Facebook. We've got Jay Nueva DB. Thank you, Jay. We've got Zinyaj Menlangit. Thank you, Zinyaj. We've got Jenny Tuya. Thank you, Jenny. Right back to you. We've got Mark Kevin Robles. Thank you, Mark. We've got Franklin Arat and Exor Macablim. Thank you all for liking our page and being there for us through thick and thin. <laughs> mainly, mainly thin uh, premise. <laughs> we have shout outs here to give for our returning listeners. Thank you again to Amy Hart, the heart of the operation. Rain prosper that red, red rain. We've got Adrian King, the punk rock queen. We've got our third person in spirit every week, Kelly Durga. We've got I see you over there, Eileen Corsano. We've got the Andre Ice Cold Lyman. My oh me, it's me oh my. We've got Jeremy Riles keeping us on those rails. We've got Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. We've got a it's LOL 2.0. We've also got Eric Andrew Dotson over here. We've got David Poe. Poe, 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 Poe. 
Oh, well done. Uh, we've also got S.A. Franco, whom we don't understand, and then we've got Yvette Wilkins, who is Wilkin on Sunshine. Brendan and Smith, which I really love. And then there's Brian Walter White Stripes. White Stripes, man. Thank you, Brian Walter White Stripes. Walter, be nicer to me. Walter, be nicer to me. I mean, won't you be nicer to me? Why can't you be nicer to me? Brian Walter, be nicer to me. Brian Walter being nicer to me. Dermak. And Jalad. At Tanagra. Since James is dying over there, you could also visit us on uh, social media. We're at facebook.com slash thirdmen. We've got at thirdmencast on Twitter, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com, thethirdmen.wordpress.com, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. That's for an email. You can do that. Uh, it's better than the phone company. And then you could uh, see where we host the show on Spreaker. That's the iHeartRadio app. That is Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, and search The Third Men on there. You can also find us on YouTube and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And, James, I'm so happy we did this. We asked people last episode to tell a friend, and you did. You did tell friends. Yes. And we got so much new love and support from telling friends, hey, that was awesome. Hey, guys, please continue to tell friends because – that's a great way to get the show out there, you know? Correct. I think that we are going to be friends, Paul, mm-hmm. me and you specifically. Yeah, And if you'd like to uh, send us some listener questions, we're always accepting <clears throat> questions from you guys. Um, and uh, we will be doing a listener's question. Did you Listen- just act like Kathy? <laughs> <laughs> I think you just act. Chocolate, am I right? Um, Ack. <laughs> uh, we will be doing a listener questions episode in the future. I know we've been saying that for a while, but we got one in the pipeline. We'd like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song, We're the Third Men. And thank you to Susanna Roundtree for the beautiful vocal introductions and uh, outros to our program. Yeah, and James, we're going to do something special here. We're going to tease our upcoming... Uh, we have a new show coming up. Mm. Uh, it is a show we are uh, producing for our father, who art in Florida, and um, it is going to be a new podcast that is uh, spinning off from this one, although it is a project, actually, James, 18 years in the making. Yes. And it is uh, a chronological fan uh, history of the Beatles from start to finish, which we are going to be calling Yesterday and Today, based on uh, our father's series of the same name that he has been building since Distil came out in 2000, really. I mean, not because Distil came out, but Distil came out in 2000. Dad started putting this thing together in 2000, and we are finally going to be sharing it with the world. We'll have more details on that soon. And we're going to have some really, really cool stuff in store for that. But, James, I'm really excited about that one. Yeah, uh, me too. And uh, I know, having listened to it for almost the entirety of my life, uh, my father can put on a hell of a radio broadcast. And uh, I think we'll we'll be able to, to get you guys a really good product if you're into the Beatles or just music. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. So, uh, stand by for more on that. Uh, we're really, really excited about it. I know we, we had promised you guys new podcasts based on our two-week schedule, and uh, so we are going to do that. Uh, and anyway, it's it's been largely put together and compiled, largely, really, m- mainly, 
Yeah. yeah. We're, we're really presenting what our father put together and took him 18 years to do. So it's really, really cool. Anyway, with that, James, we will be back here again in two weeks where we will finish to steal up. And we thank you for your patience there. And uh, we hope you all had a very happy holiday and a very new year. And uh, James, until next week, I am going to be looking for a home inside of the Schroeder house or whatever, where I am going to become a living art installation. Yes, and as always, I will be looking for a... This is good. I like this. This is good audio. Home. James recorded that in his living room. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. You don't seem to be doing so well. Uh, it was so much champagne. So much champagne. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but... This is the Third Men Podcast, and I am your co-host, James... Co- <laughs> All right, you're back. James, I heard virtually none of that, but I'm assuming it was insightful and wonderful. You know it. One of these motherfuckers died. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's the end of the... It's the end of our show. (laughs) We're the third man! The chair actually fell over. Oh man. Zinyaj Menlanket. (laughs) Thank you, Zinyaj. Well, you said it's the holiday season? Yep. Well, Hoopty Doop and Dickery Doc. I, have, I forgot to hang up my sock. Paul, I'll be back. <laughs> What's left of James's voice is dying. <laughs> All right, no, James. Just don't ask me to do a butterball. Then I will perish. Do not do a butterball. For the love of God, do not do a butterball. James. James, are you going to... Uh, <laughs> I had some Pinot Noir go down the wrong the wrong pipe there. <laughs> oh, it's already golden. Uh, James, this the, album... Oh. The, steel, the Steel Lung. <laughs> That's... For all you out there, that joke makes 
zero cents. Yep. That's what we like to call in the business an inside inside. Uh, yeah, a no, a no percenter. <laughs> uh, part of Jack's reason. Part of Jack's reasoning in Googaloogle in that one. We have fun. I uh, but Oh, she brought you along. <coughs> oh, it's long, it's long. I think it's heavy, it's good. It's long, it's long, it's better than bad, it's good. Everyone loves a log. Uh, Kona Kona loves that damn toy. Come I'm on not even get joking. Log. That's good. Come show Paul, <laughs> Do you want to stop? I think so.